Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. So, uh, the book of Isaiah um, certainly ranks as one of the finest books in the Old Testament in the Bible. Um, It's written in the form of Hebrew uh, poetic parallelism. Um, Isaiah is unmatched in its grandeur and its majesty. Um, Here's an example. Um, He writes in uh, what we might call, your English teacher might have called couplets. A lot of couplets, a lot of of pairs. Uh, We had something last week in a a question uh, in small group where they, one of those questions, remember they had to tell us the difference between two words? And I really think they meant the same thing. It was a trick question. Um, Paul does that all the time. He, he, he says two things to say the same thing. Jesus frequently quotes Isaiah. Uh, it's the most quoted book in the New Testament other than the Psalms. Um, it's arranged, interestingly, into 66 chapters, and the book parallels the 66 chapters of the Bible. The first 39 chapters correspond to the books of the Old Testament and stress the holiness, justice, and righteousness of God. The last 27 correspond to the New Testament books and stress display God's incomparable glory and grace. Um, I included, this is a detail from uh, Michelangelo's uh, work in, um, I think, the Sistine Chapel. Isaiah is probably the most painted, you know, of the prophets. Um, It's even been called, Isaiah has even been called the fifth gospel. Until the past two two centuries, uh, everyone regarded Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, to be the author of the entire book. Um, But, you know, modern day scholars think that, well, maybe there's, you know, two or three authors. Uh, But the testimony of the New Testament indicates single uh, authorship. Isaiah is referred to uh, by name 21 times in the New Testament with quotations taken from every major section of the book. Um, Not only that, Isaiah is quoted more than all of the other Old Testament prophets combined. Uh, the, The reason that modern scholars have a problem with Isaiah is that he accurately foretells details concerning people, places, and events that happen well over a century later. And so that's led people to think, oh, well, how could he have written it? Well, he wrote it because the Holy Spirit inspired him uh, and enabled him to predict the future. So as I mentioned, Isaiah was a son of Amos, not to be confused with Amos the prophet, different guy, uh, just, just to be clear about that. Um, he was a prophet to the king, uh, to the kingdom of Judah. He was a friend and confidant of King Hezekiah, um, who was a good king, one of the good kings. His name translates as Jehovah, Jehovah saves, or salvation is, salvation is of Jehovah. Really little is known about the man Isaiah, except that he does refer to his wife as a prophetess in chapter 8, and that they had two sons. Now, Isaiah actually uh, ministered over a period of of four monarchs, but Hezekiah would be the most prominent. Um, So this is a new map for this class. Um, This this map, the map that we used the last couple of weeks, 
was uh, during the time of, of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. <coughs> this, because Isaiah lived almost a couple centuries before them, um, this is an older map, or a map of an older time. So now you have, if you remember last week, I mentioned there were five major kingdoms, right? The Assyrians, the Bab Babylonians, Bab and then the Persian Empire, and then the Greeks and the Romans. Well, we're going back, skipping, we were, we were in the Persian Empire last three weeks. Now we're going backwards in time, and now we're uh, in the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria um, conquers, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel. Judah, capital is Jerusalem. And during Isaiah's time, uh, the, the Assyrians conquered Israel, 722 BC. And then they're now encroaching. They actually besieged Jerusalem. And when you remember the story with Hezekiah, where they, uh, it was this guy, uh, Sennacherib, however you say it, he was a guy that was, you know, trying to demoralize uh, Israel, or Judah rather, and King Hezekiah and sending the letters saying, you people need to give up and all that. That's what was going on during the time of Isaiah. Uh, you can see how their empire is growing. Um, they didn't, the, when I mentioned the, per, the great Persian empire, it was great because they not only conquered the Assyrians, but they conquered the Medes as well. So their, their kingdom was even larger or would become larger after this. So God would judge Assyria, that's for sure. Um, so like the northern kingdom, Judah was, was really not much different. There was little regard uh, for the law and God's covenant. Many turned to the pagan gods of their surrounding nations. Um, uh, really, the history of the, of the region, both Judah and Israel, are in general decline. Now, Judah did have some good kings along the way, and they survived longer. They lasted about um, 350 years compared to the northern kingdom, which fell after 200. So Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry was in 740. So I know that it gets confusing because when, when you're talking our centuries, as the numbers get bigger, you're later in time. But with BC, the numbers are larger and you're going backwards in time. Does that make sense? So he starts prophesying in 740, which is before the fall of Israel and Samaria, which is in 722. 740 is farther back, right? So as the numbers get smaller, you know, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we were getting up to, you know, the 500s and, and such. So 586 is when Jerusalem fell. So we were in the 500s and the 400s. And then you have that 400-year that gap before we get to the New Testament. Um, the political situation, uh, this is another new slide. I just made this a few days ago. And so there's three periods of Judah in which Isaiah prophesied. He is a prophet to the southern kingdom, Judah, which capital is Jerusalem. Um, when he starts prophesying, he warns Israel and Judah. Of course, is they don't listen. God sends Assyria to judge uh, the northern kingdom, which he does in 722. That was during the, um, the period of, as you can see, King Ahaz. He started here. Then Israel gets destroyed here during this reign. And then um, uh, this is the guy that attacks Judah. Um, 
And so this is sort of a timeline, if you want to see the timeline up here, if you can see. So the Assyrian Empire was threatening from the northeast. That was that slide back here. So they're, they're coming from up here, and they're pushing down. Uh, and it's really important to understand the politics, really, or what's going on. Uh, two political so solutions were being promoted. Some favored a coalition of Egypt to the west, which would be over here, and some said we need to um, rely on, on Assyria. Um, what do you think Isaiah said? Don't do either, right? Rely exclusively upon the Lord. That's what they should do. And so um, we're going to divide Isaiah into three parts. Um, there's, uh, and it's on your notes, so you can see those three parts in your notes. So during King Uzziah's reign, down there at the beginning, the, uh, Judah uh, experienced a period of prosperity. Uzziah freed Judah from the control of the northern kingdom because the northern king had a, kingdom had oppressed uh, Judah. He also defeated the Philistines to the west and the Ammonites to the east. He strengthened the army, made elaborate improvements, uh, to the fortification of the city of Jerusalem. But, unfortunately, these were days of uh, self-indulgence and godlessness. And I know I'm having to go fast here. I did warn you, as I'm hoping you can read some of these. Um, Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 commences upon the death of Uzziah and Judah. And this, I don't have a slide for this, I'm just going to read it. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So Uzziah's son Jotham continued on the throne. And I, you see that here, uh, Uzziah and Jotham, and they're, they're kind of uh, together in this period. Um, so let's see, I am, I'm going to make sure I'm on the right slide. Number nine, okay. Um, Jotham... Uh, reigned as a sole monarch for only about five years in Judah, after which his son Ahaz joined, and then they had a co-regency. So the, the dates in, in Scripture, that's kind of confusing because there was a co-regency for, for a time. Jotham was a good king, a God-fearing man, for he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to the Scripture. But he was unable to influence the nation in spiritual and moral concerns. He was a good guy, but sometimes good guys aren't necessarily good leaders. And so he had trouble uh, getting Judah uh, to repent. The prophets Isaiah and Micah specifically addressed the sinfulness of the people. Uh, Jotham was not without blame in respect to the people's sin, for while he ex extended the bu building of the temple, he did not remove many of the pagan temples scattered throughout Judah. And you see there's that, that fight all the time of, of tearing down those temples to pagan gods throughout the, in, in the region, outside of Jerusalem, but in the region of Judah. Uh, and that's, uh, this is the, the uh, verse from 2 Kings uh, that backs up what I just said. Consequently, the Lord sent Syria um, and Israel against Judah because the king and the, and the people were not being entirely true to the living God. And so then, starting in chapter 7, there's prophecies concerning Judah in the days of Ahaz. During the overlap of the reigns of, of Jotham, the Assyrian Empire was growing stronger. And if you went, that's what I, you'll notice in that map, how they're just pushing down and down and down. Uh, Judah's the southern kingdom, northern kingdom is going to get destroyed in 722. They're pushing their way down. Um, 
So um, Syria and the Northern Kingdom was becoming uh, concerned from the threat of uh, Syria, and they should be. They were going to get destroyed in pre pretty soon. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, tried to persuade the king of ah king Ahaz to join them against Assyria. Israel, uh, Isaiah warned King Ahaz uh, about, against participating in an anti-Syrian coalition because he knew they were strong and, and he had an ear to God, really. I mean, God was telling him and people wouldn't listen. It was almost like Isaiah was written to show you, say, see, I told you so. And so when uh, Ahaz refused to join them, then Syria and Israel attacked Judah. They intended not only to overthrow Judah, but to remove the descendants of David from the throne in Jerusalem. And this is, this is key. Um, Ahaz was encouraged to ask for a sign from the Lord in the assurance of his protection from Jehovah. But Ahaz, for whatever reason, I mean, the prophet tells him, ask for a sign, and he felt he, he tried to act magnanimous, and uh, he refused to ask for a sign, uh, because, oh, I can't, I'm not going to test the Lord. And so the sign was nevertheless given, and it forms one of the amazing, amazing prophecies concerning the Messiah. Uh, read this, you've, you've all seen this before. Uh, King Ahaz refused to trust in the Lord, and he did decide to give in and turn to Assyria for help. So instead of assisting Judah, Assyria interpreted the request as a sign of weakness. Then when at the last minute, when he, when he decided he wanted to, to give in, then he thought, oh, they're weak. Now they're asking for help. When, when they wouldn't give it before, we're just going <laughs> to go in there and kind of beat them down. And so in the next decade, Assyria destroyed the capital of Samaria, deported all the Israelites, brought in immigrants to repopulate the land, which I mentioned that before, what happened when eventually in 586, when Jerusalem was destroyed, that's exactly what happened. They repopulated and those people became the Samaritans. Uh, these people, um, uh, let's see, Isaiah also, oh, I have a map here, okay. I, I guess I went back to that. I forgot that I did that. Um, Isaiah also prophesies against the surrounding nations. Uh, this is starting in chapter 13, so now we're going to go 11 chapters. Uh, he proclaims the fall and destruction of Babylon at the hands of the Medes, which of course hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. He proph prophecies are given against Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Israel, of course, which did fall in 722, Ethiopia, Egypt, Babylon, Edom, Arabia, and against Tyre. Kevin and I were talking before the class. It is hard to read through Isaiah. It takes you, it, I mean, it wears you out, right? Because it's just, it's prophecy against nation after nation after nation after nation. And it all comes true. In the midst of these terrible prophecies against the nation, there's included a prophecy against Jerusalem and her unfaithful leaders. This is in chapter 22. So um, next, uh, the prophecy is concerning the day of the Lord. Again, I know I'm going really fast, um, but I can't even apologize for it. It is what it is, right? Um, uh, there's great distress is prophesied when the Lord judges the whole earth. And these are um, some things here in chapter 24. Um, and the devastation is well earned, right? Um, this is why uh, the... And, and you have to think how... How relevant is this today? 
to, to what it, how long is God going to be patient? We've already seen, really, Germany and a lot of the countries in, in Europe are apostate. And so you read this and you wonder if God is, you know, again, we don't know the days or the times, but these days are, no, are probably very little, uh, little different uh, from then. So then, interestingly, there's, there's now four, three chapters, a little over three chapters, where there's a historical interlude. Most of Isaiah is, prof- is uh, poetic, right? And it's, it's, it's in, in the way that it's written, a lot of mostly prophecy. Um, but so unlike that uh, poetic form that typically characterizes the first 35 chapters, the next four chapters provide a historical narrative that parallels the later chapters in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Uh, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, is king. He rules over Judah for 29 years. And I can tell you, I researched these dates, and I don't think any scholar agrees on any date. They're all different. Every time I try to get a dates for the kings, everybody disagrees. Um, but we have a, a about, right? So uh, Hezekiah is generally considered one of the wisest and best of the kings uh, of Judah. And probably why... People are, with good reason, naming their children, you know, naming their son Hezekiah. He was a good one. At the beginning of his reign, he entirely reversed the wicked policy of his father Ahaz, and with true zeal destroyed the idols and heathen temples that had been set up in the land. That's something that the previous king, Jotham, was unwilling to do. And the reason he was probably unwilling to do it is he feared the people. He wanted people to like him. It's like there's this, this Machiavellian thing where you want this combination of you want fear and respect on one hand, but you want love on the other. And, and so it's a, it's a dangerous tightrope, tight I, I suppose. Um, so his reign is distinguished not only by this reformation of religion, but also by the many public improvements that he brought about as well. When King Sargon um, the, the, uh, of the Assyrians died, his, his successor... That's Sennacherib, that's the guy I talked about before. He's the one that said he would come up, decided to come up against Jerusalem. And so when, um, if you recall, uh, this is when uh, Hezekiah was deflated. We talked about this before, earlier in my, you know, series. And what did he do? He prayed. He spread out those letters. Remember the, the letters that he got that was saying, you're going to get you're going to get destroyed. And he, and he prayed over these letters and said, and uh, tore his clothes, uh, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord, um, and and he prayed. On on receiving further threats um, from Sennacherib, uh, he prayed. And this is uh, an example of the prayer. And this is recorded in Isaiah, by the way. Um, great prayer. I hope you have time to read it and to listen to me. Um, so, admittedly, Jerusalem, Assyria was strong. You saw the map. You saw what they were conquering. Uh, their future looked terribly bleak. It seemed impossible. But Isaiah, the prophet, was sent to reassure Hezekiah that his prayers had been heard and that his confidence in the living God would be rewarded. And so Jerusalem, as you know, was, was miraculously delivered. Uh, historians think that maybe there was a plague with mice. But we don't know how God did it, but isn't that incredible? So that he destroyed 185,000 people. They didn't even have to fight him. Shortly after this event, uh, King Hezekiah of Judah became seriously ill. 
Um, Isaiah went to the king and said to him, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. And in humility, Hezekiah prayed and wept uh, uh, before the Lord. And this is the that uh, from Second Kings. And I'll I'll try to pause for a second. I'm like my adrenaline's going. I'm like I'm just like I'm on page six. I'm I might make it. <laughs> I'm, I'm really having to fly. So when Babylon sent envoys to King Hezekiah to enlist his support and result against Sennacherib of Assyria, Hezekiah unwisely shows them all of his treasure. Hezekiah wasn't perfect. And you'll never find any king, any person in the Bible that was perfect. As great as Moses was, Abraham, David, they all had flaws. Even Paul, our Peter and Paul before. I mean, they all... Um, so when Isaiah finds out what Hezekiah did, he was bragging. Um, he informs the king that one day all the wealth of the royal household will be carried away to Babylon, which, of course, happened. And this was after, you know, after he died. This is not before. This prophetic announcement provides a transition between the two parts of the book. The first part, chapters 1 through 39, is concerned with the Assyrian crisis, where the second uh, pays attention to the future concerns of Judah, the Jewish exiles in Babylon, which this would correlate more to what we've been talking about the last um, three weeks um, and maybe the end of the second week when Gary was here. So uh, now we're in part, uh, I think it probably says part D on your outline here. Uh, the prophecies of the nature of the future of, of God. So this is uh, the future. This is stuff that happens after Isaiah, uh, but that he's predicting it. Um, the, really, the last chapters form a composite whole. Uh, this was probably composed in the, later, the latter years of Isaiah's ministry. They're not intended to be just for his contemporaries, but really for the, for the, for the future church. Uh, there's four distinct periods that uh, can be identified for the application of uh, prophecies by Isaiah. And I, I list them here. These are four distinct periods. Uh, I don't know that I, I didn't put these in the notes, right, in the outline. I try to make these outlines one page. So I put this up here. If I had I been able to fit this, uh, these are the four distinct uh, periods uh, right here. Um, Isaiah is justly remembered best for what? His messianic prophecies, right? The highlights of these Holy Spirit-inspired predictions are going to be recounted in the next section, with Christ and his church. So I could, I had 13 major prophecies or categories of prophecy regarding Christ and the church. I can't do that in this amount of time. So I whittled it down. The ones that I'm going to cover, you'll see there in your, but this is um, an outline of those last chapters. So instead of going over the, that content in terms of the um, the content of the book section, which we we're in right now and we're about to leave, I'm going to include this in the section, the third section, Christ and His Church, because it applies there as well. And so, like I said, there's many more. If you're interested, Isaiah is it's just a like a a mine that you could just keep digging and digging and digging. Um, so the first one um, is um, regards the Messiah's virgin birth. Uh, again, uh, we showed this slide before. Uh, the Apostle Matthew sees the fulfillment of this prophecy 
in the miraculous conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, you can see how this fits. And again, as I mentioned, Isaiah is quoted more than all the other prophets put together in the New Testament. In this passage, uh, in the passage from Isaiah back, back in chapter 7, uh, it is also predicted that the Messiah will have a simple lifestyle. So great deal about, uh, about the Messiah throughout Isaiah, and we'll touch on some of those. The next is that the, that the Christ is none other than the Son of God on the throne of David. And this really is important. And it, again, it speaks to the deity of Christ. Jesus talks about that in his ministry when he tries to explain to people without just coming out and saying it outright, basically for him who has ears to hear, that, that he is not the same as David. He is with God at his right hand. He was one with God. You won't find the word Trinity in the New Testament, but there is justification for it throughout Scripture. And it's not just Old, New Testament, it's Old Testament as well. Um, and here this correlates, this is a correlation in the New Testament here in Luke. He will be great and called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. You cannot say that about a mortal man. This is not an earthly king. This is a divine king. Um, a third is the Messiah's outstanding qualities. I know it sounds a bit vague. He has a lot of outstanding qualities. Um, he's wise, right? Uh, he intercedes for us. He's strong. Uh, in him, all things were created, right? Through him and by him, uh, Paul says, um, Paul, in, in Romans and in Colossians, he says, in him all things hold together. It just re I find it remarkable that anybody like a Jehovah Witness or a, um, what's the other, the other cats that uh, don't go with the deity of Christ? Uh, the Mormons, thank you. They, they're like, I mean, how can you say that? In Christ, all things hold together. You can only say that about God. Only God alone. It's not even up for debate. It's just I, I can't even understand it. And don't, you know, don't say that you believe Christ's words and then not ascribe him the glory due. So this prophecy teaches that Christ will be a descendant of King David's uh, father and that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be a faithful and righteous judge of the world. He will reign his reign will be characterized by peace and harmony, which is coming. And Gentile believers and Israel's faithful remnant will gather to him. And this is Paul uh, quoting Isaiah in the New Testament. And the NASB, as I mentioned before, if you didn't catch it, uh, when you see these caps, these small, what they call small caps, this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. So here Paul is quoting Isaiah. The fourth one is that the Messiah is the excellent, uh, refers to John the Baptist, Messiah's excellent herald. And so when it says, um, and I guess I must not have put this in here, did I? All right, so I'm going to read. Um, 
And John, and he, it says in scripture, and he came into the, all the region, he being John the Baptist, into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the, the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. And then Luke records directly, quotes Isaiah. So the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, this is John the Baptist. He understood that is John, understood the relationship to the, uh, to the Messiah in terms of the prophecy in Isaiah 40. Each of the four Gospels record this connection and fulfillment. Um, the fifth would be uh, I, Messiah's gracious ministry. Again, uh, this is also quoted in the New Testament. Um, this describes Jesus and it's Isaiah, it's why Isaiah is called the fifth gospel. Um, leaving the wilderness after the temptations of Satan, our Lord returned home to Galilee. Um, and then, so I'll let you read this up here. And then what does Jesus do when he, he reads from the word of God? What does he read? He reads Isaiah 61 and announces that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Make no mistake about it. Man, I might run out of time. I've been so charged up and going fast. Uh, I mean, I, may, I might have extra time is what I mean to say. Um, are you able, have you been able to read these verses? Yes? Because I'm worried I'm going too fast. Okay, so here's the part that I thought that I might have to skip, but now I don't. But I don't have slides for these because I thought I was, not, I was going to run out of time. I mean, I can't believe I'm on page nine already and I've only been going for 30 minutes. And I feel like I've only been standing here for five. Um, so the, there's what, what some people, Bible, uh, I don't know, theologians, let's say, have categorized Isaiah. There's four parts of Isaiah in 42, 49. Uh, 50 and then 52 and 53, four of them, and they call them the, the four servant songs. And so I didn't make slides for these because honestly I didn't think I would even get to them. Um, but here they are. I did at least make a slide to categorize them. And so I'm going to go ahead and read the scriptures for each uh, that it would highlight each one. Okay, so first of all, uh, Messiah is a gentle ser servant, and I'm reading from Isaiah 42. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus was gentle and humble in heart, Matthew says in chapter 11. And the apostles often reminded the early church of Christ's meekness and gentleness, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. That's the first one. The second Messiah is a glorious servant. This is um, 49. Oh, I guess I put the reference there. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. When, what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Everybody should know this. 
right. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Third, Messiah is a competent servant. Again, I, I wish I, I don't know, competent doesn't seem like a good enough word, right? But um, it's true. It's not like it's not true. It's just I'd love to have a better word. Um, the Lord God, I'm reading from Isaiah 50 now. The Lord God has given me uh, the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is worried. He awakens me by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned or learned. Though Jesus taught with uncommon authority, he reminded his, listen, his listeners, my teaching is not mine, he says in the Gospel of John, it comes from the one who sent me. And the last, in which we probably know Isaiah most for this fourth one, is that he's a suffering servant. And these are some verses from uh, chapter 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. But he was pierced through our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, chast the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Though he is highly exalted, the Christ will be disfigured by suffering, bear our griefs and sorrows, and painfully die for our sins. Uh, the last one is Messiah's uh, universal reign. And this is fairly long, too, and I'll let you read this. This promise would be an encouragement to the, the Jews um, in, during the Babylonian exile. They had hoped that... that that the remnant that was scattered would be eventually gathered up and included in the covenant. And in fact, speaks to the Gentiles being graciously included as well. So now I'm going to deal, go to the fourth part. As you can see in your outline, I'm jumping to, to number four, application. And I've got 10 minutes left, and I think I'm going to try to fit it in. Um, one of the great concerns of Isaiah which is regularly repeated throughout his ministry, is what Paul later tells Timothy. He, he warns men and churches, leaders, who are in people who have a form of godliness, but, don't, but are really destroying its power, denying its power, rather. Um, false religion is a blatant disregard of the true God, but those who engage in the outward expressions of true religion without any reality in their hearts or minds is really offensive to God. God, I think, and we, we learn that, you know, in, in uh, Revelation, right, with, with uh, Laodicea. Uh, I think God is more upset um, with hypocrisy. It's like if you're going to, uh, what did Luther say? If you're going to sin, sin boldly. Um, so, God, God hates religious hypocrisy. Um, I keep looking back and I see Mario back here and I, I, and I don't mean to sound patronizing, Mario, but I can tell you, having gone to his Thursday night study, if there's one thing that he says over and over is that the word of God change you. Am I right, Mario? 
Yep. Because if we're just going to Bible study and it's not changing us, if we're raising our hands in worship and it's not changing us, if we're, if we're a part of Christ's word and we're not getting better, if we're not repenting, then what are we doing? It's hypocrisy and God hates it. And he will judge our church. He will. So we should be changing. We should be changing. And it's never, and now I'm going to say this at the men's conference, it's never too late to be the man you ought to be or the woman you ought to be. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. Today is the day. The Lord Jesus was equally concerned about the outward empty show. He applied Isaiah 20, 20, 29, 13 to the Pharisees and scribes of his day. This was their problem. It wasn't that they were just religious. Being, being religious alone isn't bad. The problem was their hearts were dark. The inside of their cup was dirty. The outside was great. They prayed in the temple. They tithed. They had this little thing on this box on their head called like a phylactery or something, I think it was called, that had like scripture verses in it, you know, or something. And they would basically parade around. On the outside, they were pious and righteous men. The Pharisees, you might not know this, but the Pharisees were, were admired by the people. They were like the working man's party. The Sadducees were the privileged folk. The Pharisees, the people identified with them. Um, a right relationship with God has always required a right relationship with people. Um, Jesus said, you shall love the, the, Lord, the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. But the second's just like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. He says, in these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Um, the next is... Um, the people of God are constantly in danger of being influenced by worldly considerations or ungodly counsel. Um, and again, he says, you know, make an alliance with God. Don't make an alliance with Assyria. Don't make an alliance with Egypt. Don't make an alliance with, and you can name the idol that's affecting your life. Only God can reveal his true will to us. The Apostle Paul says, Now we've received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. That's why, why Isaiah says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. In the scriptures, God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what Peter says. So that the man of God may be complete. That's what Paul says. In the scripture, God has given us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, I just repeated that. I'm so I'm getting nervous. I have five minutes left. And blessed is the man who walks in the not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The third one is affliction. Uh, Jesus promised that his disciples would experience suffering. I mean, we've got it pretty good here at Christ the Word, don't we? I mean, imagine what it's like in some countries where, they, where they don't have the freedom we have. So I pray that we would use that freedom responsibly. A nation under the judgment of God may nevertheless have a number of citizens who are faithfully seeking to love and serve him. 
They suffer alongside the wicked and the temptation is to lose hope. And that's what it's like in lots of places, even here. I mean, isn't it remarkable? Every time I see a vote yes on issue one sign, I'm thinking, these people are out of their minds. I, I'm thinking about putting up, I, I want, like, I don't, probably won't, but I'm thinking about putting up a big sign, vote yes on issue one to kill babies. Or something like that. It's just, it's really, I just, I'm getting really upset about it. Are you? I, it's just really burning in me. I can't believe that someone would put a sign in their yard just saying, yes, I want to kill babies out of convenience. Now I'm off track. Um, let's see. Uh, what slide am I on? 37. I'm supposed to be on slide 38. Okay, so I have two slides back to back, and you can go ahead and read these. Um, but I'm, I'm doing okay. So while there will be affliction, the context is, though, there's still hope. There's still hope. Even if issue one passes, we still have hope. God has, will not forget us. He may judge our nation. And we, it, I was just saying even to my secular teacher friends last week that someday in about I don't know how many years, but in future generations, children are going to be learning in history class about the, the fall of the great American empire. They are. If we keep going down this path. Things like issue one are going to destroy us. They are. Like even Mother Teresa, I know she's Catholic, but you know, she said something like, how can you expect, how can you be surprised that there isn't violence in the streets when mothers are allowed to kill their own children? So God has the right to punish us, to punish our nation. So we might, you know, it might get ugly for us. Maybe not my generation, maybe your generation. I don't know. We don't know the times. But we shouldn't be surprised. Um, battery running low. How about that? Okay. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.